You're now listening to episode 68 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thomas Costello here today with Bill Manicero, multifamily real estate investor and host of All Dogs REI Network podcast. In today's episode, we'll discuss Bill's story and how he got started in multifamily investing, the importance of systematizing your business, emerging markets, and so much more. Bill's also giving our listeners a free report, 12 Common Mistakes Real Estate Investors Make and How You Can Avoid Them. Link will be in the show notes below. Before we jump right into today's episode, I want to let everybody know that the Real Estate CPA will be putting on special virtual workshops in October, November, and December of this year, where we will discuss year-end tax tips for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open up the room for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to your last-minute tax questions before the year ends. Seats will be limited, and you can sign up by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual-workshops or by following the link in the show notes below. But that's not all. We heard your feedback from last year and created a personalized year-end tax planning service for new clients that includes one tax estimate, a call with one of our tax strategists, and a written year-end action plan that includes the steps you'll need to take to implement any last-minute tax strategies to minimize your tax liability. If you're interested in this service, head over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash year end and fill out the form located right on the page and Brandon or myself will get back to you within one to three business days to schedule an initial consultation. If you're already a client, don't worry, we'll be sending out year end tax planning emails to you over the next few weeks to schedule your year end tax planning call, but feel free to contact your tax strategist to get a head start on the process. And without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. Bill, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little bit of information on your story and why you decided to become a real estate investor? Well, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't something something that I I really uh, expected to do. I actually, um, my family spent the last 12 years at Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And uh, we have a nonprofit organization called Child Hope International. We work with uh, street kids and abandoned, orphaned uh, children on the streets of Haiti. And so we were in Haiti, and it was uh, we'd been there for for quite a while. And you know, we, we were looking at coming back to the states, and uh, you know, just kind of assessing if that's if that's what we really you know wanted to do or not, or if we were going to stay there. And so, anyway, there's a lot of lot of issues and dynamics going on. But basically. I was, you know, looking at, well, if I go back, what am I going to do? You know, I was already like approaching 60. I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to run around with a resume and try to find some sort of you know, job. I'll, I'll end up with a blue vest at Walmart probably, you know. So, you know, what can I do? And I started just examining, you know, the various things because I'm just, I'm too hyper. I, you know, I got to do something, you know, I, I'm not a person that's going to walk around and collect seashells and, you know, Laguna Beach or something. So I was like, you know, looking at options. Uh, I actually started looking at online businesses and was looking at uh, you know, sort of these drop shipment sor- sort of, uh, you know, businesses and so forth. And yep. anyway, I, so we started while we were in Haiti. It was real successful. It started going really well. And then uh, we got kicked off of eBay. And it was like, oh man, there goes the whole model, you know? Yeah. And so I'm going, this is not good, you know? 
And then I just got this unexpected check, uh, an inheritance check in the mail. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with this? And, and that's that's really kind of where it started from. I was pretty heavily invested in the stock market. I'd been in technology and a lot of other areas. So I had a lot of tech stocks and things. And and I was already kind of heavily vested there. And, I, and so I was looking at alternatives, you know, some, something to kind of round out my portfolio and had some friends who are real estate investors and uh, some guys on our board of directors of our nonprofit organization that were um, investors. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do some real estate investing, you know, just from a passive standpoint. And um, did some research, saw some markets where I thought homes would were, you know, look like they're kind of in an emerging market. So I hopped on a plane out of Port of Pinch, flew to Atlanta, flew to Memphis, came back with three turnkey rental properties. Nice. Next month I started receiving, you know, checks in the mail. And I'm going, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, and I just looked at it as a as an investment. I wasn't really going to do anything, you know, with these. I just thought the checks would just keep coming in. I wouldn't have to worry about it. But uh, I thought, well, gee, maybe this could be a potential business. And I had started businesses. I spent 20 years in business. And part of that is an entrepreneur. And so I, I knew how to start businesses. I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do like a little real estate investing business. And and that's really where it started. And so I started piecing together, started doing more research, bought another uh, investment property in Indianapolis. And then, uh, you know, we flew back to the States for sort of a one-year sabbatical to figure out if if we really wanted to stay or not, or whether or not we would go back to Haiti. And while we're there, we decided, yeah, we really, really needed to stay. And so we, you know, we kept, we still have our nonprofit in Haiti. That's the, you know, big part of my motivation to actually get involved in real estate investing, because I want to be able to help the kids there through some of the proceeds as we, as we start to build up our portfolio. So, so that's really how it developed. I got a little more serious. I said, Hey, you know, my goal is a thousand units and I'll just keep plowing forward. And once, you know, we build that up then you know, part of that will go to our nonprofit and part of it will just be for, you know, for us and for the legacy to be able to hand down to my kids and grandkids. Makes sense. A lot of people get into it for that legacy. And uh, it's, it's always good to hear that there's another motivation behind it besides, you know, just the money at the end of the day, you, you do a lot uh, for the charitable work in Haiti, which is always good to hear. You know, took a look at your website and I noticed that you're you're into multifamily real estate. And you know, one of the questions that I had was out of all the different strategies you could have gone into, you know, there's single family rentals, there's turnkey, there's there's fix and flipping, there's all, all these various avenues, note investing. Why multifamily out of all these uh, various strategies that were available? Well, you know, I was learning and I'm still learning. I still consider myself a student and I'm, I'm learning as I go along. And uh, my first three properties were two single family homes and a duplex, paid about the same for each property. But the duplex was making twice as much. Okay. But I still, like these single families, I only had, you know, one property tax payment, one insurance payment, you know, one roof to deal with. So I I was kind of going, it was kind of like a duh moment, you know, where I just kind of said, you know, why am I wasting my time with single family homes when I could, you know, plus when I have a vacancy, it's only a 50% vacancy as opposed to a hundred percent vacancy in a single family. So that just basically said, gee, you know, if I can get these at the same prices I'm getting single family homes for, why don't I just buy a bunch more duplexes? But as I looked at it and I started to think about economies of scale, well, you know, why limit myself to just a duplex? Why not look at four or eight or 10 or 20 or 50 or hundred, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, really started me thinking, you know, yeah, it's just, it made more sense. I could, especially if I can get larger properties where I can have an on-site property manager, you know, I can control what happens there a lot better. 
And so that's really what what kind of kicked it off. And so the next property I bought was a 22-unit property. And then I, I saw that whole economies of scale just work out in an amazing way. And I could also see, you know, sort of the multiplication effect that goes on when you increase rents, you know, and how it overall increases the value of that property significantly that, um, you know, you can do changes to a single family home, but usually you're not going to go much beyond what the market will bear, right? In terms of yeah. what rents you can ask, but, you know, ask for, and you, you really, can, you can add all kinds of, you know, upgrades and so forth, but you're still not going to surpass what the sort of the, the neighborhood, you know, averages in terms of price. So that's what I liked about it is that I could control the value of my property, you know, just by value, you know, just doing a value add type strategy and increasing, you know, rents, decreasing expenses and, you know, boosting the ROI to the point where the value of that property increases significantly. And, and that's what really got me is I just said, this is amazing. You know, you can, you can really, even, even in a declining market, you could have your property going up in value if you're doing a value add sort of play with a hundred percent. That's a, that's the exact reason why I love multifamily, why I invest in multifamilies because you could pay increasing rents and minimizing expenses, lowering expenses. You can increase that NOI and force the appreciation of those properties. It's something you really can't do on properties that are one through four units, right? So it's uh, definitely a very powerful strategy. Uh, question I have is, do you feel that an investor needs to start out in that single family or one to four unit space, or could they just go straight from, let's say, you know, from zero to like, say 22 units, or do they need to build up that learning curve? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. At first I would, I would have said, um, yeah, it's better to start small, you know, get your feet wet. But, you know, most people, or at least a lot of people, uh, especially my age, which is sort of my my audience that I speak to in my podcast and my website and my blog and stuff, is, um, yeah, they've, they've owned a home before. So if you've gone through the process, you've gone through escrow once, you know, <laughs> you know you've worked with a mortgage uh, company or, a, you know, bank, and so you know how to finance it. You know, the basics, a lot of people already have that own a home. So why have to do that again? And, uh, you know, one thing that's really very cool in, in terms of the folks that I speak to is I talk to a lot of investors that get started late in life. And some of these guys jump in um, and they'll buy, you know, 100 plus units as their first investment, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, yeah, there are some different dynamics, and especially if you get into syndication and some other aspects of it. But generally, you're still buying a property. You're still signing escrow papers. You're still, it's not that different than buying a single family home. And uh, you just have to be a little bit more, you know, a little more specific in your due diligence and and dig a little deeper. And, you know, you got to look at a lot more property than you do with a single family home. But overall, it's not that different. So, you know, I talk to guys all the time that started off, um, you know, boom, with 100 plus units, you know, just coming out of, Maybe they were in a, in a program or a training seminar or what have you, where they learned about apartments and why have to start smaller? I think it's almost better to start with more because there are enormous advantages. You know, you don't have to deal with some of the, the sort of minuscule property management issues that you do with a single family home. Um, you know, one thing that I noticed with property management is I, and I invest out of state. I, I live in Southern California. My properties are in the Midwest and the South. And I always have to deal with property managers. And if you're a single family owner, you know, the, the property manager, you're one of probably 300 other, you know, properties that he owns. So you're really not getting their full undivided attention. 
And, and sometimes you have to kind of vie for their attention and their interest in managing your property. Whereas you have a full-time property manager on site at your property, all that person is focused on is that property's success. And uh, you know, granted, you know, you got to hire the right people, and they've got to be motivated, and you've got to keep them, you know, monitored as well. But overall, you know, that you've got a person whose full-time responsibility, forty hours a week, is on your property and its success. Whereas if you have a bunch of multifamilies, you've got you know, some property managers who are very divided and, uh, you know, have to deal with a lot of other properties and owners as well. Yeah, 100% agree. You know, from my experience, from everything I've seen, uh, I started off as a multifamily investor, made a few limited partnership investments, and then uh, was part of a team that uh, syndicated 82 units. And we have an on-site manager, dedicated property manager. And it's just amazing on how, you know, seamless things run when you have that level of support in place, which it is is not really you know, possible on on the smaller units. Now, I've also been invested in with people who are in the smaller units. I think we had was it seventeen units across a nine unit, six unit, and duplex in in uh, Kentucky, and we had that same exact property management situation that you're talking about right here, um, going back and forth. And there's all these problems, and it's just amazing. And I think it, it is really powerful when you when you look at those higher. Those, those properties with the higher units that can support that property management on how seamless it goes and how like stress-free it's almost sometimes I, I feel like it's too good to be true in, in right, some ways. Right. Yeah. And it's true. And I, I think it also, you know, with the larger properties attract a higher level of professional to manage that property too. Whereas, you know, a lot of the folks that are managing the single family homes, yeah, they, they have to be a broker, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they really have a lot of experience in property management. Whereas you can actually, you know, hire either a firm, a large firm that handles larger units and have, you know, them manage your person, or you can, you know, oversee your own person. And uh, uh, I, I think it just has a higher level of professionalism, which reduces your, you know, your risk uh, to a fair, fair degree. Uh, I, I agree. I agree. I can agree more. Uh, on your podcast, you discuss the passive, uh, you know, passive investing is a big key. And I know for a lot of investors out there, passive investing is is the goal, right? Uh, a lot of people just want the financial rewards of investing in real estate and don't necessarily uh, want to do all the work. So a uh, question for you is, do you have any systems in place to make or what systems do you use to make uh, investing as passive as possible for you? Yeah, I think that that's, you know, that's key, especially for the folks that are in my ballpark, the baby boomers, the people that are, um, you know, they've already been out there, they've had a career, they've had a job, okay, you know, we don't want another job, we don't want, you know, we we really just, you know, want to be able to sort of yield the profit, the benefits of having a property, but it's kind of, you know, there's, there's various aspects, like you said, passive income can come in many different shapes, you know, I have I have people that are uh, investors that want to invest in my projects, and and they don't really want to know about the day-to-day management issues. They could, you know, as long as as long as you're meeting your goal and and you've set your business plan and you you know you're 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 on target, you know, they just want to get their yield, you know, and they yeah. want to get their quarterly check, and they and at the end they you know whatever the exit strategy is, they get their little bonus, and and boom, everybody's happy. So that's that's one degree of this passivity that a lot of people really are looking at because you get the best returns in real estate right now than, than a lot of other options out there in the investment world. So there's that. And then there's the guy that like myself that actually has properties that, that I own and oversee. And for me, it's, it's really, you know, setting up systems 
that you, you can hand over exactly what you want and how you want that property to be managed. So when you bring in a property manager, you literally hand them a, a little manual and say, this is what I want. These are the reports I want. This is what I you know, expect you to do in terms of you know, the number of showings. And I want evidence that those showings occurred. And, and I want to see you know, the, sort of your top candidates for tenants and, and, you know, and various aspects like that. As you get more confidence in the person, you can ease up a little bit. But it's important early on to set up systems that allow you to be able to, I mean, imagine you're creating a franchise, you know, yeah. and that that manual is going to be something you're going to hand on. And literally, that's kind of my thought, because I have a son who loves real estate investing. He's only 19, but he's really interested in it. And, you know, I want to be able to have this little manual and hand it to him and say, hey, I'm done. <laughs> you know, you can take over the family business and, you know, and I'll just be part of the, you know, the, the happy investors, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but, I, but I think that, that you almost have to go in there with that idea of, of creating, you, you know, you can't say it's not a business. Even if you own one property, you're in the real estate business. You know, you've got one, I mean, you're a CPA, right? So, you, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, you've got profit, loss, you've got, you know, you've got all these uh, expenses you're running a business. And so why would you want to run it any less than, you know, some of the top-notch businesses that are out there, you know, that are franchises and very successful? A hundred percent. And I love the fact that you said that about the systems and having a manual, you know, I, I really do believe in systems and that if you're going to build a business, it's imperative to document the way you want things done so that you can easily train people, hand it off to somebody else, and you can keep uh, some controls in place. And now, the good thing about systems, especially uh, for real estate investors out there who might be listening, is you don't necessarily even have to build a system yourself. You know, you can go out there and buy a franchise that's already a system. You're buying a system, or you can go and get coaching and mentorship programs and what have you uh, that can either you know give you the system or, or help you create your own system. I, I just can't stress enough how important systems are, and, and I'm really glad that uh, you came out there and and you said that there. I think that's key and something definitely that, um, you know, is our, our goal and, and we're shaping it and changing it, you know, as we go along too, you know, we find some things that may have worked for someone else, or maybe you did come from a training or a program where they have their, so you have to adapt it to your style and, uh, you know, the way that you do things as well. And, uh, but I think the overall core stuff, there's fundamental stuff that has to, you have to have a good bookkeeping system. You have to keep good records. You have to, you know, all those things you know, that that's going to contribute to your success just as much as, you know, how you screen tenants and how you, how you update uh, your property and so forth. 100%. So, you know, one of the things I also noticed as I was browsing through the content that you had available was emerging markets is, is a recurring theme. So mm-hmm. it's kind of curious to know what markets are emerging that you're looking into, you know, as of right now in 2019 and going into 2020. And why are those going to be emerging markets? Wow, you can have me reveal all my secrets here. I don't know. <laughs> okay, only, only a few, you know, a few thousand people listening. Who knows? You know? But uh, yeah, there are certain areas, certain markets that are just sort of unrelenting. Okay, mm-hmm. um, if, for example, if you know, you can look at the Forbes, you know, top markets and uh, real estate markets and so forth, and there's some that just keep showing up again and again and again, like a Dallas Fort Worth area. Okay. You know, you can say, yeah, Dallas Forward has been hot for the last 10 years or whatever. I mean, really, maybe more the last, you know, six years, it's just been going crazy. Um, and there's still good buys there. But, yeah, it's also, you know, it's, uh, the cap rates getting compressed more and more. And, and it's tougher to find the good deals and so forth. But it's still a good market. And why is it a good market? Because there are people moving there. 
and they're not slowing down. They're still coming into you know Texas, a lot of parts of Texas. But uh, you know, but that's an area. As long as there's people that are coming in, and there are jobs for those people, you know that that's sort of the foundation. So the so the first elements we look at, we look at population, we look at uh, trends for the last ten years, last five, last three years, and we we look at uh, what areas have those big bumps in terms of population, and then we sort of overlap that with the you know the jobs numbers. Then we have to look at uh, you know what rental rates and rent ratios and so forth. And, you know, as you start to overlap, you know, these, these overlapping sort of circles here, you know, you start to have certain areas that just emerge that just pop. And, you know, some of those areas, yeah, you know, I'll give you general areas here, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give any rate of secrets. I guess I could have phrased it to be a little bit more. General. No, I'm just kidding. I don't mind. I don't mind revealing because there's plenty of, plenty of stuff out there, but, uh, I'm just kind of joking with you, but the, I, I think that, um, you know, those, those areas are constantly changing and an emerging market, what you're looking for is probably anywhere from a three to a seven year upward move. So, you know, you're looking at a bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the base of that bell, you want to get up there and you want to be able to exit, not after you already reached the top of that bell, but you know, the top of the bubble, so to speak, but you know, where there's still some meat on the bone where people want to buy in that area. And there's still plenty of people buying, for example, in a, in a Dallas-Fort Worth area, for example. But uh, you know, some of the areas that we're seeing some pretty dynamic growth, or you know, like the uh, the west coast of Florida, you know, certain areas on the on the, on the western, so, you know, so, you know, mid southern portion of, of Florida, uh, the Carolinas. Uh, there's one of the things that that we we're kind of experiencing on a nationwide basis is it's a seller's market. It's a seller's market on a nationwide basis, mm-hmm. but there are these emerging markets where there's buyer's markets, these little micro areas. But when you've got such a predominant selling market, um, you have to kind of move to secondary tertiary markets where you really right. will see the, those real opportunities. And so, you know, like, like in a, in a Tennessee, for example, you know, Nashville's been hot. It's like, it's also like a Dallas Fort Worth, you know, man, you know, I wish I would have had, you know, 10 years ago, I wish I would have bought Nashville, but uh, there's still some good opportunities there. But then you start to look at areas like Clarksville, you know, and, uh, you know, it's not as big a metro area, but it's reaping some of this, the rewards of all these people moving to, to central Tennessee and, and stuff. So there, there are these, these other areas that are may not as, you know, not, not be as obvious, but um, they're within some, and then they've got some that are sort of within like, like sort of the top of the list is usually uh, Pacific Northwest. You've got Washington, Oregon, Idaho, which are, are, you know, have been some of the hottest areas. Um, also some of the most expansive areas too. But then you start to move into the secondary tertiary markets. You know, you may not look at Boise, Idaho, but uh, you might look at Nampa, okay, which is a very short distance, could be a commute to Boise. You know, places like Nampa are growing like crazy. You know, those are some of the, the some of the dynamics you're looking at. There's there's places within a 40-minute drive from Portland, from the Seattle metro area, from these areas that really haven't been tapped yet. And um, so as, as we are monitoring, we're looking at single family home sales, for example, and single family prices because multi follows single family. And so we, we kind of can see a little early what could be the next hot multi-market. It may already be hot in terms of single family sales, but 
the multi always seems to follow. So those are some of the areas that we're kind of looking at. I think still think that Central, I love Indianapolis. Uh, Indianapolis is what I call more of a slow and steady, not so much an emerging area. But, you know, I bought a duplex in 20, I guess it was 2016. Yeah, 2016. That's already almost quadrupled in price. <laughs> now, that's that's the dynamic of a of an emerging market, right? But so there are pockets within the Indiana um, uh, market where you can get those kind of returns. But I'd say most of it overall is a slow and steady, which is fine for, especially for us old dogs here, you know, that are looking for that slow and steady. We want that good solid return over a longer period of time. So we don't want to have to necessarily find somebody to buy the property in three to five years. I'm happier with a seven to 10 year hold. You know, or if it's something that's really good, why not hold on to it for 20 years? You know, yeah, I don't think the the model that applied four or five years ago is the same model that exists today. That's all great insight. And, um, you know, one of the biggest things I think I, I picked out of there was, you know, you have to look at the tertiary, the secondary and tertiary markets, because, you know, sometimes the primary market there gets a little too hot and, you know, you have to go out and, you know, from my, I live in New York, right? So I lived in New York City for a while. And one thing about New York is New York spreads out wide. Yeah. I imagine it, you know, as these, you know, say, for instance, Dallas or, or in Indianapolis, for example, as these cities grow, they, they start to sprawl out as well. And that's really when you see those, that growth in those, in those uh, secondary and tertiary markets. And even like you said, some of those markets may not even be experiencing high amounts of growth, but are just slow and steady. And those are the better for cash flow, the long term buy and holds where it's a little bit less intensive, I guess you would say. Right, right, exactly. And, and you know, a lot of it too is just geographic. You know, a lot of times you just get sort of an aerial view, you know, and you can see two hot areas, two hot MSAs, and then you kind of look between them, you know, just on a map. And um, you, you can see, you know, pockets of potential growth there because if, it, if it's, uh, again, within that commuting distance, there, there's promise. And, and uh but, you know, again, you have to have all the dynamics. You have to look at everything. You know, our business is coming into town to provide those jobs. You know, is there you know, maybe a Nike factory or, or a, an Amazon factory coming in? Um, what are they doing on a local basis? You know, some of the, the city planners and so forth to attract business there. You know, are there tax incentives? Are there, you know, other types of incentives that would attract business to the area? So you have to have sort of all the ducks in a row to really you know, to really know if that's going to be an emerging market or not. But uh, I think there are those pockets out there if people just look and and do their homework. All great insights. One more question before we jump into a few of our accounting and tax questions, because of course we have to ask those, but are there any specific metrics that you look at when say buying or or selling a property that that stick out that that are just like important metrics in your mind? Yeah. I mean, for my, for myself, you know, I, you know, cash flow is our focus, you know, so when we are, um, you know, cash on cash returns, um, you know, the, the cash flow for that particular property is, for example, you know, most of the retired folks that are, that are out there, they, they're looking either as something to supplement their existing retirement, or they're looking for something that will be their retirement, you know, they're, they're so they're, the cash flow is key. Equity is almost a secondary, you know, tertiary down the road you know yeah it's a great little bonus when it happens but really unless you've got that good solid cash flow i mean that as far as a metric if you can call that a metric that that's really what we look at first and foremost is just what's the cash flow you know, how can you boost it and what factors do you have in place that will to keep that consistently growing 
Uh, we gotta love the cash on cash return. So yeah. we, we do have to switch a little gears here into our tax and accounting uh, segments. Uh, nothing too crazy, but are there any uh, tax strategies uh, that you use to to minimize your taxes and increase or or maximize the cash flow on your properties or your overall portfolio? Yeah. Well, what, one of the first things that I experienced, which is really interesting, is that. Um, you know, when I started investing in real estate, I was at 1099. You know, I, I didn't have a W-2, in, you know, any longer. And so I was coming in as a 1099 person. So I was just digging the tax write-offs that I got, okay, right off the bat, because I, um, you know, everything I do is a value-add sort of place. So had a lot of capital expenditures, had a lot of things that, that just brought my, you know, my taxes to zero. Okay. And so like my first year as an investor, I'm going, oh yeah, I don't have to pay any taxes. I mean, I was just like, I was just, I was in awe, but then okay, I started to ramp up. Okay. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm okay, going into year two here and I got pretty much zero income according to my tax returns. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, try to get financing. Okay. <laughs> going in there with zero. And this is something I didn't think about, you know, I really didn't think about is that gosh, you know, that that it's a great thing not to not have to pay taxes. But you know, if you're gonna try to fund, you know, uh, future growth, you you, you want to be able to you know get the best loans at the best rates. And you can't do that as a 1099 retired person, that's it's really difficult. So, you know, I, I to me, I'd say what was my tax strategy? Well, my tax strategy in the beginning was to pay as little taxes as possible. But, you know, now as I'm really thinking, I'm looking at it, I'm going, man, you know, should I set up a corporation or something and to be able to, uh, you know, maybe even become a W-2 employee of my own corporation or what have you yeah. so that I, I can get these better loans. And now what I do find, though, and this is, I guess you could say it's part of a tax strategy is that I really don't have to worry about that that much anymore now that I'm syndicating because really they're not looking at my, you know, we're basically looking at non-recourse loans. You know, we're looking at, um, you know, investors and, and sponsors and others that, that you know, that are going to be part of this package. So really, my, my tax status, my, you know, I thought in terms of, you know, the fact that I have zero income, you know, at least on paper, looks, you know, it, it doesn't really matter as much anymore. And so, you know, as I'm syndicating, I'm, I'm seeing that that's not as big an issue. But if you're trying to build up a portfolio, it is a big issue because, you don't want to get strapped with these. And like I did, I, I had to end up getting, you know, not not hard money, but it was kind of like the next step in between in terms of uh, funding some of these at, you know, at 7%, something like that, you know, which wasn't all that great. That's interesting to hear because, you know, for people, the end goal is to pay no taxes. But it, I guess at the end of the day, it does come down to your individual circumstances because while real estate can be great and, and on paper, you could pay virtually no taxes, I guess, you know, in some circumstances where you're going to get financing, like you had just said, it could be a struggle. So that may not always be the most favorable uh, or most desirable outcome for some people. So I, I guess that just goes to show the importance of tax planning and working with the right professionals only because you don't know how these situations are going to impact you, uh, which you might hear, you know, on the internet or you might hear out in, you know, from books or whatever may not always apply to everybody. So but that's interesting to hear that you couldn't get some, that, that the financing was difficult um, to achieve. 
Yeah. I mean, I even had my, you know, my accountant say to me, you know, do you want to do like accelerated depreciation? You know, and I go, why? I don't need any more, I don't need any more, you know, deductions here. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I just like, you know, I, it was like a lot of people are looking for every little thing. I didn't have to because of the type of you know, investing I was doing and, and the fact that I was constantly, you know, rehabbing or upgrading properties. And so I, I had a lot of, you know, a lot of expenses that I could deduct. So yeah, I never really got to get into any any tax. Now I know what's going to happen now as I as I become more of a sponsor and and you know and that, then I'm going to have okay a whole different situation. And there I, I need to really start looking at strategies that are going to make sense so that I, I'm not losing all of my you know all of my benefit there and my investment my the returns that I'm getting. So yeah, absolutely. Things definitely do change up when you when you do go in, in, into syndication. The fees are taxed a little bit differently, so definitely a bit different. Uh, but you know, on the accounting and you know bookkeeping side of things, how do you end up handling uh, bookkeeping and accounting for your properties? Do you do it yourself? Do you have an in-house person? Do you outsource it? Yeah, I, it's kind of all of the above. You know, I, I'm involved to a certain degree. We do you know um, Quicken online, so I can have an outside the bookkeeper. And I can access the records real easily because we're, you know, we're sharing the data. Uh, my CPA can also access that that same data. But I'm pretty involved in the process because I, um, you know, I want to make sure that I, I, you know, the right things are being uploaded. And the, and the, you know, uh, my problem is okay, integrating that with property managers that use totally different property management software. So nobody's on the same, you know, the same thing. Sometimes they have to download raw files that I have to convert you know or basically you know get them to the point where they can upload into quickbooks so it's it does it is a little bit difficult yeah and unless you can get everybody on the same plane there <laughs> and uh you know we, we hear you 100 percent on the on the property management side of things it's uh it's certainly challenging because there's so many you know different property managers use different property management softwares and if you have multiple properties in different locations you might have multiple property managers and it's just trying to consolidate it out like you said just it, it takes some manual work so it is challenging but we are we are we're working on a way to try to get around that and um, we're hoping to make some progress on that soon but well, tell me, put pain. me on your list uh, when you get that one resolved. I want to talk to you guys. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. That that's like one of the biggest challenges. Plus, I you know you have people sometimes in your property management firms, you know, especially for the smaller properties that may not have an, a real accounting background, you know, mm-hmm. and you find these items, expense items, going into the wrong, uh, you know, the wrong classes or the wrong, you know, the wrong accounts and. And so I have to periodically, you know, just go through these things and scan these and say, no, that's a capital expense there. Yeah. That's, you know, that's not a maintenance expense, you know. So that's, you know, if, if you could find a way to sync all that stuff together. Well, I mean, ultimately, our goal is to get everything, even all the property management in-house. That's ultimately what I'd like to do. And then we'll manage that whole process ourselves. But right now, you know, with all these different properties in different places, it uh, you know just makes more sense to have somebody local doing it you know as far as the property management side. But I think the ultimate goal is to you know have a not necessarily a property management company that's going to be doing other people's business, but having our own in-house property management uh, person that oversees those properties. Uh, vertical integration, vertical integration, love it. So we generally ask our guests what their favorite technology is, but one to to ask you what your favorite technology you're currently using is, and also add on another question: what's your favorite real estate investing book and why oh okay well uh there is one software that uh, some of my property managers use mm-hmm. 
uh, called Bilium. Um, yep. And uh, this is probably the best one I've seen. I've seen a lot of them because I've gone through a lot of property managers, unfortunately. But uh, it's closer to where I would want to be. It's, it's. I mean, if I had to create my own, this is as close that I've seen to being an excellent, uh, excellent technology for what we do. Um, now, granted, I think uh, there are a lot of proprietary type programs out there as well that would come with maybe a higher level of property management, but that's one that I really like a lot. Um, as far as, uh, gosh, I, that's always hard. I ask the same question <laughs> to my guests too. And, you know, I, I, I always used to say, yeah, rich dad, poor dad, you know, uh, as a, you know, so, but, uh, but really it's not so much the case anymore. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting because I've, uh, I've kind of had like, a you know, as, as I talk to people, they, they say books and I go, Oh, let me check out that book. Let me, you know, and I read them. And I, I like Ken McElroy's stuff, the ABCs of real estate investing and advanced guide. Um, but there's this, uh, there was this great book. It was uh, not a lot of people know about it. It's, uh, it's by a friend of mine, actually, who lives here in Southern California, Marty Stone or Martin Stone. It's called The Unofficial Guide to Real Estate Investing. And uh, it's really uh, just a real practical, you know, uh, not, not a lot of bells and whistles, but just, you know, how to be a, a good real estate investor. And they're like a little boutique a brokerage that whereas you you go in there as an investor and you say i want to you know buy a rental property and they you know they don't just go out and find a rental property they have like classes for all their clients and they come in free classes and they sit down and they teach you what real estate investing really is and they've been doing this for 20 30 years okay <laughs> in southern california which is a tough market but they all their clients buy in Southern California and, you know, which is like probably the most compressed, I mean, probably outside of New York, parts of New York, I mean, one of the most compressed cap rates there are. And yet all the stuff that they taught these folks went into this book that, uh, that Marty Stone put together. And so that, that has become my, uh, sort of my favorite, uh, real estate investing book because it's, it's kind of like real estate investing for dummies and which it was what I need, you know? So it, it's a good book. No, I'm going to have to add that to my list. I'm always looking for those like tactical how-to books that really just get down to like the brass tacks of how to do it. You know, a lot of books right. explain the concepts and great high levels, great for motivation and great for helping you understand new things. But when it comes down to actually putting the tire to the road or, or however that phrase goes, um, those type of books are the best. What would be the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you or learn more about you if they wanted to do so? Well, sure. Um, the you know the best thing is our is our website, and you know just uh, so the folks know. I mean, we our whole focus is um, our blog as well as our podcast is uh, teaching sort of the latecomer here. You know, the the late bloomers, so to speak. You know, that are either approaching retirement or in retire, so like fifty plus in age that uh, are getting involved with real estate investing. Um, we just you know we act as sort of an educational tool for them. You know, I don't do any coaching. I don't have any programs I'm selling or anything. It's totally, it's totally information. And I, I share a lot of my story as part of that, especially in the blogs, uh, but in the podcast as well. But our focus is really for the one that just like starts later in life. We have kind of a different framework than those that are starting, you know, like young guys like you that could come in, you've got, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ahead of you. Whereas we're, you know, we're looking for a quick return, you know, and uh, in a short, sort of a shorter term plan so that we're not, you know, we're not working full time. We're, 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 you know, create a structure 
that produces the income that we want so we can enjoy our retirement years, you know. So that's our focus. And it's uh, the website is it's called the old, it's called Old Dogs REI Network. And dogs is spelled D-A-W-G-S. Okay, Old Dogs REI for Real Estate Investing Network dot com. And on there, you know, is our is our podcast as well as our blog, but there's also a contact page there. So if anybody wants to write to me, you know, get back to everybody that does. And uh, you can uh, just go in the contact page and, and ask a question or whatever it is, and uh, and we'll we'll connect. Awesome. We'll have that link in the show notes. Uh, Bill, it was a pleasure to have you on today. You gave uh, a ton of valuable information to our audience, and we always appreciate when that happens. And yeah, thanks again for coming on. Look forward to releasing it. Oh, well, thanks a lot, Tom. And it's been great to hanging out with you here. You know, this is this is awesome. Hey, everybody. It's Thomas Costelli here for the debrief section of this podcast. I want to thank Bill Massanero for coming on today. It was really an excellent episode, provided a lot of great value. And as you already know, Brennan was out today. So it's just, just me doing a solo. And one of the biggest takeaways I've got from the podcast with Bill today was when he started to emphasize the importance of systematizing your business. And I really believe that to my core, that that is a key to success in business. And it's really you know understanding what are the core functions of your business? What are the tasks you do on a day-to-day basis? And just documenting those. And the reason why you want to document those is because eventually you may need to have somebody else do that task. And what happens is you have all that knowledge stored up in your head, but it's nowhere to be found. And, and when you do document that, it makes training a lot easier. And you know, one of the things that I always hear when I talk to people about documenting their systems and processes and all that is, is it going to be good enough the first time? What if things change? Well, you know, things are always changing in today's world. And you're always finding bigger and better ways to do things and more efficient ways to do things rather. And your documents, your, your processes and procedures, your systems are just going to go through iterations. You know, you start out with the first one, uh, you find a better way to, you find a better mousetrap, you go back to that document, you update it. Um, but I, you know, I just, I really can't stress it enough. And one of the good things about this real estate industry that we're all in as, as real estate investors is this isn't rocket science. This isn't nothing, anything new. We're not reinventing the wheel. I mean, unless you're in crowdfunding or something like that, you're, you're innovating on the tech side or you're, you're trying to innovate real estate into the blockchain technology or something along those lines. Really, uh, the core business model of real estate, regardless of what you're in, buy and hold, fix and flip, uh, real estate syndication, multifamily, uh, the core systems are out there and there's a ton of coaches, there's a ton of mentors and consultants out there that can help you develop those systems and really shore up your business so that you can scale. And uh, while I'm on that, I just want to throw out a few books. If you are interested in really systematizing your business and getting into a repeatable process uh, so that you can hand it off to other people and that they can uh, help you scale, there's some good books. Um, one of them is called Traction uh, by Gina Wickman. Uh, there's another one called The E-Myth Revisited uh, by Michael Gerber, I believe is, is the author. And there's another one out there called Scale. Uh, I think it's called, uh, it is by uh, David uh, David Finkel, I think his name is. And really those, those books just give you a framework on, on how to systematize your business uh, to turn to a scalable enterprise. Other things that Bill threw out there that were good, that were notable were about the markets, uh, you know, in, in today's environment, the low interest rates since you know the the, the early 2010s or so have have really uh, caused the price and really pushed and, and and how hot just like the market and demand for multifamily is from investors have really pushed the prices up in these primary markets like a Dallas or like an Atlanta or or some of these other uh, major metros that you might hear about. 
And really, when you look in that secondary or those tertiary markets, that's where you really, when you find the gold, I mean, I'm invested in in a fund that one of the best performing properties is out in some town you never heard of. So you really never know. You have to look at the demographics. You have to look at the market trends and see where it's going. So those are some of the things that I, that I saw that Bill came out that was really good. Again, I just really have to tip my hat off. Thank him for coming on the show today. It was an excellent episode. And jumping right into the Q&A section, we do have a question this week from a guy named Jeff. And Jeff asks, I'm a passive investor and used uh, my self-directed IRA to fund a deal. And then believe what you're asking, Jeff, is what is the impact of bonus depreciation and cost segregation study on my taxes? So that's a great question. So whenever you invest through a retirement account, uh, like a self-directed IRA, you're really putting a tax shelter, which is real estate, into another tax shelter. And you lose a lot of the tax benefits from real estate when you do that. And let, let me explain a little bit further. So let's say you put, uh, you put a rental property into your, into your self-directed IRA. Well, whatever income is derived from that property outside of you, but we'll get to that in a second, is going to be tax-free because it's in the IRA. So, and, and what real estate does is, is bonus depreciation and cost segregation they will increase and accelerate your depreciation expense uh, so that on your tax return, uh, you basically show a loss for tax purposes and you don't get taxed on your rental income. And that's really the core benefit of investing in real estate is you can use, again, 100% bonus depreciation and cost segregation studies to basically pay no taxes on your rental real estate when they're out of your retirement account. So when you go ahead and you put that asset into a retirement account, such as not a, a self-directed IRA, uh, the 100% bonus depreciation, the cost segregation study, uh, cost segregation studies yeah, almost become irrelevant. It's a non-factor at that point because you're not paying taxes. Uh, but that said, depending on the circumstances uh, with your self-directed IRA, you may be subject to UBIT, the unrelated business income tax, uh, if you use debt financing on your property. So uh, whenever you invest through a self-directed IRA and you do get a loan or a mortgage, the percentage, uh, this is the rough math, the non-technical version, uh, the percentage of your property that is considered to be financed through debt, so let's just say 75% using a standard loan-to-value ratio, the 75% of the income derived from that property uh, will be subject to uh, the UBIT tax. And I guess to dig a little bit deeper, in that scenario, 100% bonus depreciation and cost irrigation can cause a loss still so that you're even within your retirement account, you're not generating any income and thus you're not subject to any UBIT. Uh, so that would be the benefit on your self-directed IRA specifically if the property was financed with debt financing is that the 100% bonus depreciation and cost segregation would eliminate the UBIT tax, at least on the rental income from the property. You might still see some UBIT on the back end, depending on how big of a capital gain you have and, and how much of those uh the losses generated by the bonus depreciation and cost irrigation study ultimately are left when you sell it. Uh, last thing I wanted to point out here is that you are not subject to the unrelated business income tax, aka UBIT, when you invest in property that's financed by debt using a solo 401k. So if you have the ability to use a solo 401k over a self-directed IRA, and there are some custodians out there uh, that can get creative and help you open a solo 401k, then I would absolutely recommend it because you are not subject to UBIT on properties that are financed with debt, which is going to be primarily most syndicates and pretty much a, a majority of the properties you're going to be looking at. So that's it signing out. 
for today. I uh, hope that answers your question, Jeff. Uh, looking forward to answering more in the next episode. And as a reminder, you can submit your questions to the Real Estate CPA podcast by going to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts and dropping your question into the box that's located right on the front of the page. And we may just answer it live. And to that same note, if there's any guests you want us to bring on, any topics you want us to discuss, uh, go ahead and drop that in that box as well. And uh, we may just discuss those or bring that person on. So thanks again. Tom Costelli signing out. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.